0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the pros and content podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, and I'm hosting our data-driven CMO series, during which I will interview CMOs who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their business forward. In these interviews, we're going to reveal really unique perspectives On the importance and intersection of measurement and content but also a ton of fun personal stories and great career advice from these incredible leaders. I hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome to the Data-Driven CMO podcast. I'm super excited to have Kim with me today. She's the CMO of Coursera and Coursera is a company that I think is dear to a lot of us and probably to a lot of the world because they played a major role during COVID and really helping make universities and education accessible to those who needed it. Um, And I know that, Kim, you've been there since the beginning and you've seen and really made this company grow to what it is today, from just a consumer track to consumer and B2B and government as well, I think now you guys are focused on. So super excited to hear your story and to hear how you've built Coursera and the marketing team there to date. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Of course. I actually will ask you to maybe start telling us a little bit about you personally, just to create some context for us as to where you live and what your personal life is like. And then I'm going to ask you a bit about your journey as a marketer.
1: (laughs) The short answer is it's crazy. (laughs) I live in California in the Bay Area, right near Stanford University. I have three children, an eight-year-old, five-year-old, and two-year-old, a golden retriever dog we cannot forget. He's the 3.5 children live with my husband in the Area. That's awesome. I keep hearing from people who have three kids
0: that when you have one, it's like two-on-one. Then it's like each parent has one child, but when you have three kids, it's like... Zone defense, they call it. <laughs> zone defense, right, right. So impressive that you're able to play that role and to also be a dog mom and to also do what you do. So tell us a little bit about your journey as a marketer. Where did you get started? How did you get to where you are?
1: Sure. So I've always been super passionate about understanding people, what makes them tick. I studied sociology and psychology in college. So one of those liberal arts majors and really wanted to understand how I could apply that in the business world. I quickly figured out that I loved bringing that together with understanding what people need, with what businesses can offer in terms of products and services to meet those needs. So I started out doing brand consulting, which was all about finding that match and help companies really uncover their differentiation. Went to business school to get a more well-rounded sense of business and think about industries I might want to apply that in. Caught the startup bug wanting to change the world and work for companies that had inspiring missions to make people's day-to-day lives better. Spent some time at Apple doing iPhone app marketing and then five years at Facebook Now Meta doing a mix of B2B marketing, mobile product marketing, consumer brand marketing, then joined Coursera to lead brand and product marketing. And I've been there for seven and a half years. So I wasn't right there at the beginning, but certainly early in Coursera's journey. and have rotated through, I call the first year and a half, a rotation program of marketing being brand new in the organization and figuring out, oh, the business has this challenge now. How can marketing solve that? About two years in, I was promoted to CMO when we had our new CEO, Jeff called us start and have been at Coursera ever since. And it's been a really, really fun ride that I'm extremely grateful for.
0: So Kim, you have also seen the company through IPO, and I know that as the CMO, well, I think as a CMO, it's a very different experience than kind of business as usual. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and the mindset shift you had to go through and take your team through?
1: Yes, definitely. It was definitely a career highlight. I recommend it for anyone who has that opportunity. What was nice about it is when you put together your IPO story, it's this moment of crystallizing everything that the business is today and where you want to take it. And so a little bit before we actually went through the IPO unintentionally, we had recently rebranded Coursera, really refined our values, our mission, our positioning, all of that. And so we had a really crisp way of articulating everything from why we existed to our audiences and our product portfolio and things like that. And so it was really nice to have that grounding foundation going into things like writing the S1 to describe what Coursera was all about and working on a roadshow video and things like that. So it's this really amazing moment to hone your story for the world and express that through these different formats. And then probably the highlight was the actual IPO day experience where we were able to really celebrate the entire Coursera community from all of the employees who had gotten us to that point to our partner's from our founding partners, all the way through to partners today around the world, our customers, and of course, our learners. And so it was a really wonderful way to have all voices from the community represented together to celebrate that milestone. And of course, it is just a milestone. And it's really in many ways the start. We went through a bit of a shift of thinking about, okay, well, this is now the next league, right? we're moving up a league and operating as a public company is obviously a lot more specific and intense about how you need to make sure you have that predictability and scalability built into your business. And so we really focused on how do we all play up at the next level? What does that mean? What does success look like? And really tried to hold that high bar as we moved into being a public company.
0: As you've gone through all these different stages, I'm sure that you've had to explain marketing to a lot of different people from internal stakeholders to your partners, to investors, etc. How do you do that? And what's the hardest thing about explaining marketing to non-marketers?
1: Hopefully, as marketers, we're all good at putting things in terms of your audience's language and values. And so I think that's the key thing, right? Is I don't try to explain things in marketing speak. I always try to explain them in the context of why they matter to the person that I'm talking to. So whether that's the CEO thinking about how our sales and marketing spend as a percent of revenue is panning out and how it's driving specific growth metrics for the business or whether it's talking to our head of product about how our product marketing team is helping uncover more product market fit for our products. So I think it's really about knowing your audience and what they care about, making sure that marketing is playing a central role in what the business really needs and not something that's off to the side.
0: It makes sense. So in terms of kind of how you've built the Coursera team, tell us a bit at the beginning, like how many people are on the team? What were their roles? What were the principles that you used to think about how to scale the different functions
1: at different times? So when I started, it was very early in terms of Coursera's marketing journey. Coursera had just hired a CMO. He hired myself to lead brand and product marketing and a counterpart to lead acquisition and retention marketing. I had a junior... PR person and social media marketer on my team. And my counterpart had a woman who was doing SEO, partner marketing, and email marketing all together. So there were about 5 of us, very scrappy and lean. And I think the way we approached it really was initially for that first year and a half, oh, first, we need to launch our brand strategy. So we're going to go work on that. That's why I was hired. Next, we're launching a bunch of product changes around pricing and business model. You need product marketing to help support that to figure out how to roll that out and the steps and how to communicate that to your audiences. So I did that for a few months and then hired someone to do that. Then we were going into the time of year where we have our partners conference, which is a lot about how do we really understand what our university partners need. And so leaned in with the team to create that partners conference, think about our partner marketing strategy, then hired someone to do that. Then we were going and launching an enterprise business and so worked on that launch and then hired someone with that expertise to do that. And I think my counterpart, similarly, on the acquisition retention side was proving out paid media channels and then hiring people to do that in different channels that would help Coursera grow, whether deeper SEO, deeper paid marketing activities, and other things. And so in the beginning, it was really going where the business needed us and trying to show how marketing could advance our objectives in a better way. And have that kind of impact. And then ultimately, when I took on the CMO role, at that point, our enterprise business had really started to take off. And so, for a long time, my leadership team was a head of consumer marketing, head of enterprise marketing, brand and creative, and comms. So, we operated like that for several years pretty successfully. And then, as Coursera continued to grow, it became clear that we needed more regional focus. So, we added a head of EMEA marketing and a head of APAC marketing. And so that was really kind of the start of a regional matrix organization. We also added strategy and operations to help us as a team scale as we grew. And we also centralized product marketing because it was clear that that was really a center of excellence where we needed to do things the same way across consumer and enterprise, and also really take a view from a platform perspective of how our products could work across segments as well to create more leverage. And then finally, we ended up splitting out consumer and degrees because degrees is a much longer consideration, life cycle. And there are also a lot of activities we needed to do to grow Coursera's top of funnel. And so it was better to have two leaders focus on that. But The short answer is we work very much in a matrix. We have three revenue segments, so degrees, consumer, and enterprise, our regional leaders who sign up for regional goals across those three segments to the segment leaders, and then the supporting functions that go across all three segments, which are brand and creative, comms, strategy, and ops, and PMM. So it's been a journey and an evolution.
0: Well, it's interesting to hear how you've thought about breaking things down and sort of simplifying them while also adding complexity just because of the growth that you guys had. Were there any playbooks or any models of organizations that you were looking towards
1: to learn as you were building your own? The one thing I've consistently heard from every marketer who has gone through this journey is that there's no right answer here. So
0: my sense is that
1: there are pros and cons to every solution, depending on how matrix you go or how regional you go and all of these things. And it's really about building a strong leadership team that knows how to operate together. And I would say the one tool That we use a lot at Coursera that is really helpful is the rapid framework to identify who the decision maker is for each type of question or business challenge you want to solve. So you can easily get bogged down if there's too many people weighing in on things. And so the framework just explicitly makes you say who's responsible, who's the decider, the D, who's input, who's performing. And then is there a agree or kind of an ultimate person who needs to sign off on the decision? So that can really help eliminate a lot of swirl that can happen otherwise as the organization gets more complex. So that's a tool that I really love. I like that. It's really simple. I actually was just in a
0: session with our product and engineering team talking about who makes the final decision on a lot of the different decisions that are getting thrown at us. And we were talking about something very similar. I agreed that it's super, super important to move at speed when a lot of things are coming. Right. You talked about the realization that product marketing has to become a COE. And I am curious, are you thinking of any other functions in that way today, or have you since decided that other functions need to be a COE? And what was the logic?
1: Yeah, that's been the big one. Our channel team has sat with the consumer team overall, kind of as a top of funnel consumer revenue team. So in that, we have an SEO leader, an email leader, and a paid marketing leader. And those leaders do work across the segments as well because there is such a channel. Expertise that's associated with that. That's the other place. Obviously, communications is, is one that is central as well. I think it's really when there's deep kind of functional expertise that's required and is consistent across the audience types where it helps a lot to have that centralized and have one leader who's managing the quality way that we're doing that, managing consistency. And also, where there's an internal touch point that's consistent. So, for example, then that product marketing leader is the main point of contact for the product leadership as well, which helps get things done in a consistent way. So, that leads
0: me to ask you then about content, because a lot of our customers at some point decide to use more of a hub and spoke model or a COE model for content because they feel like the company has to sort of sound in the same way or have some level of consistency in the themes that they cover, the way they cover it, etc. I'm curious, how do you think about that? I also think there's so much within product marketing that is really content. So how have you guys thought about that function?
1: Yeah, we're definitely in a journey on that and have gone back and forth on the right time and when to centralize or not. Right now, we're not centralized on content. And I think the reason for that is because we're still in kind of nail it mode to really define the way that it drives the business forward. And so I don't want to take the focus off of the independent business objective. So for example, where we're seeing a lot of explosive content marketing growth is on our SEO articles that we're working on to drive Coursera's registrant base and traffic and top of funnel. That's really successful and it has very specific metrics and ROI. We run it almost like it's a paid marketing channel, right? Except that it's upfront investment and development of articles that then pays off over a much longer period of time but it's very much a acquisition channel for us on the enterprise side we use content much more around thought leadership which does help power top of funnel but more through channels like PR or web traffic and things like that and then also as part of the buyer journey and as we get into field marketing and customer marketing and things like that really spotlighting our customers and things like that but it does take The way they operate and the form they take is quite different, but I hope that there is a time where it is standardized enough and it's at a scale where it might make sense to bring together. We do look for that brand consistency with a central brand team, right? So we do have Coursera as a company has one parent brand. It's really Coursera's brand that powers our enterprise products, our consumer products, and degree products. So we think more about it as how do we make sure that that brand represents Learner job outcomes, degree outcomes, and the ability to upskill your workforce for enterprise outcomes and building that into the overall brand perception as opposed to breaking those out separately. So that's where we look at how do these themes come together and what's our positioning and how does that ladder up to the whole? That makes sense. And by the way, no one could
0: say that the right model for content is to have COE. I think similarly to like, how do you build an overall marketing org? They're right or wrong. There's just trying, right? You talked about the kind of role of content and driving different parts of the customer journey, which I think is really interesting. I think traditionally, a lot of teams have thought about content just kind of from a brand perspective, you know, is it driving consideration and so on and so forth. But it sounds like you guys are already thinking about it as an acquisition instrument. Do you have a team that is kind of a customer journey team? Or is it, do you kind of have the same breakdown with kind of the top of funnel team and the lower funnel team?
1: Yeah. So I mentioned in the channel team, we have SEO, paid, and then email or like more lifecycle marketing. So email, but it also includes other communication channels. So that's really where we get into more of the retention levers. And that's the team that helps automate a lot of email sequences throughout the buyer journey. That's obviously heaviest in our degree space and then our enterprise buyer space. So we also in enterprise have a demand gen team that runs a lot of our campaign work. So that piece of it is somewhat segmented across enterprise and consumer degrees. And that's how we run it. Got it. Obviously data and just understanding if what you're doing is working is such an
0: important part of an acquisition driven business. How do you guys measure your own performance? Is it a team that sits within the marketing org? Does it sit
1: parallel to it or both? Data overall at Coursera sits as a central data science organization in the product org. And then the data teams are embedded within the functional team. So from a business measurement perspective, we work with uh, decision scientists who are embedded within marketing who help us track the performance of all of our campaigns and the work that we do. Like I mentioned, we operate the business through three revenue segments. So, when I think about are we performing, are we hitting our targets? It's really about are we hitting the goals of our input metrics that ladder up to those business metrics, whether it's revenue coming from new degree students, whether it's new paid learners driving consumer revenue, or whether it's pipeline generated to drive enterprise sales. And so, in the enterprise side, there's a sales operations team and marketing operations team that really helps. Monitor that pipeline development for us within degrees. Similarly, it's that kind of business operations function. And for consumer, it's much more real time, right? So, there it's more traditional of a data science model that helps us track all of that.
0: And what's one of the most difficult things about
1: tracking the performance of marketing? I don't think there's anything that's that challenging about tracking the performance because a lot of the work that we do is set up with really specific goals. As a company, we're always working to make data availability and dashboards more real-time, more accessible, easier for marketers to glean their own insights from. So that's an area where just the surfacing and usability of data is a key area that we're working on. But I think that that's the main challenge is just the frequency of updates and things like that. It's not actually connecting the work to the business goals. The one exception to that, which all marketers, I think, face is as you think about kind of investments that are payback over a longer time or are more brand driven, whether that's more of your corporate communications efforts or whether that's more of your brand building efforts, that's where it's harder to tie back things to a short-term ROI. And I would say comms we look at from more of a power of voice, share of voice perspective, and then a brand we look at in terms of monitoring our awareness. And then we look at experimental channels that get us into new audiences and think about those driving registrants and things like that. The point that you just made about the usability of data products is actually a really important
0: one. I'm personally really passionate about it because I think for whatever reason, when companies build data products, they build them purposely to be complicated. I think maybe (laughs) we're all just like nerding out about like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we had five ways to cut this data? Uh So it makes it just difficult for non data or non-techie people to know what to do with the data and how to use it. So I think your point is an important one. And my prediction, just briefly, is that a lot of the revolution in software is really going to be about usability and operationalizing data, especially for business makers. So anyway, that's my quick plug on that. Do you guys distinguish between the kind of different functions of data? Like, Do you have a research team that does qualitative and then a data science team that does more of the quant? any other teams?
1: Yeah. So we have decision science, which is more about kind of business analytics. That's the team that we most directly often work with in marketing to really help understand the effectiveness of the work that we're doing. Then we have our full machine learning team, basically who's building the models that are actually powering a lot of Coursera's recommendation algorithms, learner at risk models, things like that. So there's a lot of data products that we're working on building with machine learning and then data engineering. So there's different functions within that. And then when I think about how we use data at Coursera broadly, there's four use cases. So one is how do we really make sure that we're identifying the right learners on our platform based on their behaviors and characteristics, and then matching that with the right learning products for them. So that's a big part of how we run our entire marketing system is we tracked a lot of learners for free and low cost at the top of the funnel. And then we work with data and technology teams to connect them to the right learning products throughout their professional and academic journeys. So that's really the recommendation algorithms, the matching, all of that. The second is for actual learning products. So a big piece of making learning more customized and making people more successful is understanding where they're dropping off, what kind of questions might be coming up and using AI to predict those drop-offs and then help with both either automated interventions or prompting human interventions to help them be successful. Then the third, I would say, is more in kind of the thought leadership space, using data to see what skills are people learning, what skills are employers demanding, and helping set that kind of vision for where people's skill development needs to go in the future based on how they're developing skills on Coursera and actually being able to help them measure the skill development that they're getting through how they're performing on assessments. And then the final, which is the more common one is just actually measuring business performance, right? So those are the different kind of ways that we use data at Coursera. And it really is at the heart of the value proposition that we offer to our audiences. That's really impressive to have defined it so well. And it sounds like this is something that is pervasive
0: across all the business functions of the company, not just marketing. Yes. I think data can really be this connective tissue, a performance connective tissue for so many different teams. And it sounds like you guys have instrumented that way. Your business in many ways is content. So I was going to ask you, I know that you guys have a series of courses about marketing and for marketers. So I was going to ask you to give
1: your own plug a little bit here. Absolutely. Happy to. Coursera has everything from very job aligned training programs, certificate programs, degree programs to really broaden your knowledge in any direction. So some of my favorite courses and some popular ones are everything from parenting to the science of well-being from Yale. From a marketing perspective, we actually recently rolled out our own marketing academy. So in our L&D product, we have a marketing academy, a data academy, tech academy, leadership academy, and career academy for career switchers. And within marketing and all those academies, what we're able to do is say, what job role is someone in and what are the required skill proficiencies for that job role? And then we pair them with where they are today. So we have a product that allows them to do a level set and then they can say, okay, if I want to advance, here are the skills that matter to the job role that I want. And then here are the courses that can help me develop those skills. And then through the data tools that we were just talking about, we can actually measure your development of skill proficiency along those skills that are important for the jobs that you want to get. The way we think about that is we just went through our mid year performance cycle, which has a growth orientation. So everyone fills out. Individual growth plans and talks to their manager about how, where they want to take their career, whether it's a different role or advancing in their current role or switching. And then we can use the Marketing Academy on Coursera to help them get the leadership skills, the marketing skills, the data skills, etc., that map to those career goals. And we make that available to all of our employees. So it's a great way to really map learning to career development and also be able to measure the impact of that. I love that. And so, really, content and data is at the core of everything you guys do. Yes very true. So let's talk a
0: little bit about COVID and what you guys did when COVID first hit and how that experience was for you. And I know you're going to tell us about all the great things you did, but I'm also curious, how did you navigate it? I know that your youngest is two, right? Yeah. I think there are a lot of things intersecting at the same time. Yes. I'm curious, personally and professionally, how did that
1: go? That's a great segue because the day I was supposed to come back to work after maternity leave was literally the day that the world shut down and our office closed. So I had my bag packed for my first day back in the office and then it never happened. And I had my first call with our team, our executive team, talking about, oh, my gosh, all these universities that we serve are shutting down. They don't know how to serve their students. What are we going to do? And so what was great is Coursera was extremely well positioned to serve our universities, both customers and partners during that time. So the first thing we did was roll out. We had just started our Coursera for Campus product, which allows universities to leverage Coursera for their students on campus. And so we made that free and available to universities around the world. We had 4,000 institutions sign up right away and reach millions of students through that. Then the next part of the trend was people being let go from their jobs. And so we worked with governments, another one of our enterprise segments on the Workforce Recovery Initiative which allowed them to offer Coursera for free to anyone who was unemployed. And we were able to impact people in 100 countries and all over the world. So we immediately kind of revamped our product to create a freemium enterprise offering, which was a great opportunity to both serve the world and get our product into many more people's hands that had known about it before. So it was a really great thing for the world and for our business long term. And then that really helped us think differently also about our acquisition model for enterprise accounts longer term. That was a lot of the excitement. I would say the thing I'm most proud of the team during that time was just our executive team quickly coming together. There's certainly revenue cannibalization risks making those decisions, but it was just really clear that this was the right thing to do at the right time and that the payoff would happen long term. And so it was definitely an interesting time. The last thing I would mention is that our company decided early on to go fully remote for good or at least hybrid. But we intentionally said you never have to return back to the office. So we had employees move all over the country, all over the world. We already were growing a more global team. So as a company, it's been a big journey to figure out the right balance of how do we have community and engagement and problem solving and also be fully remote across all of these time zones and not completely burn people out. So it's an ongoing iterative journey. So we talked a bit
0: about the remote work in response to COVID. I'm curious, I don't know if you're feeling this at all. We made the same decision. I'm now feeling a little bit of FOMO about (laughs) the companies that are going back to the office. I do still believe that, at least for us as a company, the hybrid or kind of remote, but with in-person meetings is the right model. But I am finding that when it comes to big decisions or creative brainstorms or just driving perpetual alignment and engagement across the teams, it's harder. It's much harder. Yeah. And kind of the status quo of remote is to keep kind of even once you get aligned, you're kind of letting people go back into their islands. How are you thinking about that? I'm assuming you haven't figured it out. Cause if you have, then you'd have a course on
1: it. But yeah, exactly. You have a
0: course on it. I don't know. <laughs> but how are you
1: thinking about that? I agree with everything that you just said and we're still trying to figure it out for sure. One of the work streams we have right now is what is our cadence for bringing people together, because there's also so many different levels that people interact. One of the things we've done is say that the executive team will travel and meet because our executive team is spread out now, too. So our executive team will get together about six times a year in different locations. Some of those will be in our Mountain View headquarters, but others will be in areas where we have a lot of employees, whether it's another office somewhere else in the world or a city with a lot of employees where we can bring people together. So it's a way for us to go to the team as opposed to needing to bring everyone to travel together at the same time, which is really cost prohibitive. And then we come together with a slightly larger group for key planning cycles in the year. So every spring, we do a three-year strategy process. Every fall, we do annual planning. And those are kind of key strategic moments in the company where it's important to get teams together the question becomes you know beyond that when do individual subteams come together and do they do that more from a regional focus whether it's the people they work with day to day the most or not or do we do that more from a functional focus one of the things that we've tried to adopt is more of a we work strategy for hubs hub locations right so where we have a lot of employees in an area we have set up those types of spaces so that they can come together and then we've also experimented with specific days that are in-person events and bring people together within regions and different areas that we might not always have offices. But I would say it's definitely a work in progress. And I agree completely that it is important in certain instances, I think largely for strategy and problem solving, and then also just for community and feeling like you're part of something bigger, which is a big part of all of our lives is where we work, right? And the people we work with. I think it drives trust. Yes. It's so
0: hard for whatever reason. I haven't looked into the psychology of this, but it's so hard to build trust with someone through a screen. Maybe it's because it's harder to be candid or vulnerable. Who knows? But that's something we have to really figure out how to unlock if we're going to keep in this kind of remote world for the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. We'll keep each other posted on. (laughs) Final set of questions. The world is in an interesting place right now. There's a lot of looming threats. That are happening all over the world. The economy is shaky to say the least. How are you thinking as a CMO about the next 12 months? And you said, you know, every fall you plan for the next year. So mm-hmm. it's a good
1: time for you to give us your full plan. <laughs> yeah. If I knew it, I would, you know, <laughs> it is a very different climate and there's so many unknowns right now. And one of the things that's interesting about education is that it, in many ways, is counter cyclical. So when unemployment is low, people don't want to learn because they're, full-time working in amazing jobs. When unemployment increases, people look towards bettering themselves and education as an opportunity. So there's a lot of unknown, because right now we both are in this recessionary environment, but unemployment is still very low. So it's unclear where this is going to take us. I think our strategy this year is much more, I would say, somewhat defensive than it has been previously, where we're more on the offense and how do we grow and grow and grow? And we certainly still will grow next year. The company's well-positioned to do that. But we also want to be very intentional. So a lot of the conversation this year is about where do we really need to focus? Where do we win today that we want to double down? We need to take fewer things in the experimental bucket and really place our bets wisely. We just don't have the bandwidth and resources to go approach everything. And in our space, there's lots of great ideas. So it is intentionally focusing us to be much more focused on clearly defining where we went and clearly defining what our experiments are and how we're going to validate those. And that experimental bucket really needs to be the things that are the potential to truly differentiate us in a meaningful way in the future and capture some of those tailwinds should things turn. That's a great,
0: great answer. A very honest one. I appreciate it. Are you thinking at all, maybe more with a tactical hat on, are you thinking at all about changing tactics from like a more paid heavy tactic for acquisition to a more organic heavy tactic for acquisition or maybe
1: changing the focus from just acquisition to higher quality customers or higher LTV? I wouldn't say it's a complete departure. So our marketing strategy all along, like I mentioned, has been really a freemium focus model. So we want to continue to lean into what are the SEO articles, for example, is a great growth vehicle for us that is a quote unquote free marketing channel as opposed to paid. But we are thinking about, you know, what are the thresholds we want to have for return on ad spend this year in order to make sure we're more focused? And should we be more focused in certain regions instead of spreading out in as many different places? And then I think the key place is also just really honing our productivity. So, for example, in the enterprise side, making sure that we're improving the conversions through our funnel so that the work that we're doing is working harder for the business and we're converting it more and things like that. That makes a lot of sense. The final question is really around your
0: advice to marketers. I think I'm going to create like a multi-level question though. Advice for marketers who want to also go on this journey of growing with a company. You know, how do you pick the tech company that's going to likely IPO? I don't know if you have like the secret sauce or the crystal ball, but what are the makings of a great company if you're going to go join a startup? And then the second question is, what would be your advice to CMOs
1: and to marketers for how to approach the next 12 months? Okay. First question, I will give you probably more of the textbook answer, and then I'll give you more how I make decisions. (laughs) I would say, look for companies that are really on a great growth trajectory. Typically, you want to look at, are they in a market with a high addressable market? Do they have a large TAM that they're going after? Do they have something really unique that solves a critical pain point for that customer audience? that's hard for other people to replicate? And is it something that you believe in, right? Because so much of what we do is how much passion do you have for what you do? How much is it just part of what you're thinking about and, and what you want to build? So that's maybe more the technical answer. I would say for myself also, a lot is just, I'm very much a mission-driven person, like just believing what the company is trying to do in the world. And if you really know a space that you feel passionately about or a problem that you want to work towards and solve and you believe in a leadership team and again, a proposition that could really make the world a better place, then I think that's a great place to go apply your talents and obviously, you know, make sure that they have enough runway as a business yeah. and we're operating their financials soundly. But aside from that, I also think there's a big piece of follow your passions and your heart in terms of what gets you most excited each day. I love that. And then on the second question, agility, I think is the name of the game for everyone right now, right? So scenario planning, think through different opportunities. I think everyone is being a little bit more cautious right now, but also make sure you're setting yourselves up and doing the things that could lead to the biggest opportunities for future growth. So a lot of what we are focused on is Focus in on what we know we need to do and then still position ourselves and do the right things to make sure that we're in the position for long-term success, but be specific about the bets that you're making in that space and be prepared to pivot as we learn more information. The quote that I keep repeating to the team is, when the
0: facts change, we change our mind. Yes. I keep saying that even though it's obvious, but it's a very important slogan to have during a time like this. Well, Kim, thank you. You've been so kind with your time and your advice. I love everything you shared with us. And it's really great to see that you're equally passionate about the company that you're working in, the kind of job that you're in, but then also data-driven and humble and realistic about where the world is headed. So yeah,
1: it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Data-Driven CMO. Take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with CMOs who are ahead of the curve in content and data, using both to move their businesses forward. Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot And thanks for listening.